Hey everyone, John here. Just a quick word of warning. Uh, we will be spoiling this film in its entirety, so if you have not seen this film and you don't want it spoiled for you, uh, just hit pause real quick and go and watch the movie and then come back and enjoy the show. Paul? Oh? What was that? Uh, an editorial tete You want to grab a drink? It's 10 in the morning. Late breakfast? Early lunch, you know. Are you okay? No. To another episode of Surviving Chick Flicks. I am not Paul Avery. I'm Georgie. <laughs> and this week we are finally getting to a movie that we uh, we're going to do back in August. We figured we would wrap up spooky season with our manly movie of the month edition and finally talk about one of my top ten films. In fact, I think it's number seven. If I, I'm, I'll have to double check how correct I am. But we are talking about the film Zodiac by David Fincher. And we have someone uh, joining us uh, once again. Uh, welcome back, Mark. Hello. And happy Halloween. Happy we have acknowledged that it's actual, we're recording on Halloween Day. And if you're hearing this on Halloween Day, John started doing Coke and somehow got two episodes out in the same night. Wow. <laughs> so um, why don't we play the trailer and I feel like we have a lot to get to in this movie because there's a lot going on. It's a long so, movie, too. <laughs> it, it is. Uh, so, and there's a, and no time is wasted in its nearly three hour run. So <laughs> let, let's play that trailer and then we'll get to it. Dear Editor, this is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. He wants his code in the afternoon edition. Ray Smith, don't you have a cartoon to finish? The Zodiac Killer has come to San Francisco. Another letter. School children make nice targets. He gave himself a name. Greek. Morse code, astrological signs. This guy's used them all. I like killing people because man is the most dangerous animal of all. How does one do that? I like puzzles. I do them a lot. Got any hard suspects? About uh, 90 an hour. I'm up to around 500. You got four crime scenes, not a single usable print. You can't think of this case in normal police terms. He's breaking the pattern. Lana said you were a cartoonist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing at a gun range? I just want to help. What are you, some kind of boy scout? Eagle scout, actually. First class. Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, God, say it was there's no evidence, Robert. What do you mean there's no evidence? You have him seen with the ciphers, the military blueprints, the bloody knife. All circumstantial. Why do you need to do this? Because nobody else will. Dave, you made a mistake! Get away from the window. Paul, are you okay? No. Why'd you do it? 
Put your face out there for him to see. Hello? Who is this? Zodiac was my job. It's not yours. He's still out there, Dave. Killing is his compulsion. It drives him. It's in his blood. Jeez. What? Squirrels. This is the Zodiac speaking. I have a gun. I can give you a lift to the service station. Do you always go around helping people in the night? I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. Are you sure there's nobody else in the house? All right, Zodiac, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., Mark Ruffalo, Anthony Edwards, Chloe Sevigny, Dermot Mulroney, Brian Cox, John Carroll Lynch, Elias Cotius, Donald Logue, based on the books by Robert Graysmith, written by James Vanderbilt, and directed by David Fincher. So um, we're going to start like we do every week. Uh, Mark, Sammy, when was the first time you saw this movie? Well... Since Mark's our guest, I guess we'll let him go first. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I would have seen this in theaters when it came out. I ran to the damn theater to watch this yeah. film. <laughs> I was already such a big fan of Fincher's material at this point. And then when that and this material were married, I'm like, okay, you got me in the seat. And I, I it's funny because the first time I saw it, I think... Well, I really enjoyed it. It took the second viewing for me to be like, I love this film, right? Because there's a lot to take in. You know, it's it's a it's a fascinating subject, a scary subject at that. You know, especially if you live in the SF Bay Area. Um, but yeah, I just it was that second viewing for me, which I would say probably has been the year of watching it initially that made me fall in love with this film. All right, Sammy. Um. As a surprise to no one, I don't remember. Um, <laughs> there's like Take a drink. Half, <laughs> there's like half a possibility I saw it in the theater, but I don't. I don't think so, because I want to say that um, was this film post Day After Tomorrow. Yes. Okay, so then I definitely saw it post. So I know that this was you know post Day After Tomorrow days so um all i can confidently say is that i entirely watched it because of jake gyllenhaal and maybe in part because of robert downey jr um because i didn't i didn't know anything about the zodiac killer and i do love true crime so that that was another draw but um yeah he would have been the entire reason i watched the film and um i'm glad i did all right all right so this film came out um see february uh, oh no it was a uh, wide release march of uh, march 2nd of 2007 so i saw it march 2nd of 2007 and and like mark i ran to the theater because fincher you know like at, you know after <laughs> fight you know after fight club uh panic room seven even alien three i was I was all about seeing what he was going to do with this story. I knew of the Zodiac Killer, didn't know much. Um, and uh, when I saw it the first time, I fell asleep. 
<laughs> and the reason was I was working nights and um, my body did not want to go to sleep during the day. <laughs> but uh, I went on ba- essentially a nap to go see the movie. And uh, there was a good mm, 20 minutes I was not present <laughs> for. So I um, went back, I, I believe it was the next week. Because 300 came out the same night, and I did a double feature of 300 and Zodiac and stayed awake for both. Tell me, Joe, do you like movies with gladiators in them? <laughs> I just like to point. I just like to know how classy you guys are because both of y'all are over there seeing the film because of the quality of the director and the films he's made, and I, um, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> let me sing. Let me sing you the song. Let me sing you the song of me and sing everything Eliza Dushku was in from about two thousand to about uh, whenever the Alphabet Killer came out, and I checked out. <laughs> Sammy, I do not fault you for that because seriously, I mean, we get to stare at Jake for all this time, and Mark Ruffalo's in it, Robert Downey Jr., three people who have gone on to make Marvel films, by the way. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. so many good actors in it, but there's such a, it's such a handsome cast. It's like, yes. oh my God. <laughs> I, and I will say, in my defense, um, I was a teenage girl, so I really can't be faulted for, um, you know, Fincher not being my, my main draw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, just just to uh, make myself the saddest in this uh, scenario, um, two years ago, I still gave Eliza Dushku ninety dollars for a uh, Blu-ray, a signed Blu-ray of the Maplethorpe movie that she came in, that she and her brother co-produced. And whenever it oh. finally came in a couple of weeks ago, I was yeah. disappointed because I it lost my story of Eliza Dushku owes me ninety dollars. <laughs> Ah, uh, I don't think I've, yeah. I've seen that. Is it? I take it it takes place in Maplethorpe, Maplethorpe's life, and they have somebody playing Patty Smith in it as well. Yes, and okay, good, the good. girl who plays Patty Smith, I can't remember her name, was fantastic. Okay. But good, uh, good. as I was waiting yeah. on the movie to, you know, to be shipped to me, um, Nathan Dushku was just like, "Good news, everyone! The movie's on Hulu." And I watched it, and I was just like, "I paid ninety dollars for this." <laughs> Oh jeez! It's it's not a it's not a bad movie. It's just you know didn't live up to spending ninety dollars. Ninety dollars. Yeah. Like I, I'm hard on. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be real. I'm hard pressed to think of a singular movie yeah. I would spend ninety dollars on. You, you yeah. should have probably at some point in my life talked me into buying the extended cut, uh, embossed in gold, uh, all three Lord of the Rings films. For ninety dollars, that were collector's edition signed by the mm. cast. Yeah, but um, you know, short of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, spoiler alert for the shoutouts. I saw last night in Soho, and uh, it's now my favorite film of the year. And I wouldn't pay ninety dollars for a Blu-ray of that, <laughs> unless, <laughs> unless Edgar Wright himself presented it to me, and then you know I got to hang out with him for like a day. Yeah, that would be yeah. great, but he would have to have Anna Taylor Joy along with them. Otherwise, no, I'm not going to pay no ninety bucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe seventy if you know, honest, not there. Okay, there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but all right, Zodiac. So um, I wrote a short premise, uh, and there is so much going on in this movie because um, I remember. Um, 
there's a podcast interview that uh, James Vanderbilt uh, was on, involved with, and the studio was freaking about the out about the length, and of course, you know, Fincher, his his response was like, "Well, everyone's just gonna have to talk faster," <laughs> and <laughs> there is so much going on in this. Um, there's film like to do a plot synopsis, you know, and go beat by beat. That's going to take 10 minutes. And <laughs> I would rather save, you know, <laughs> that, that 10 minutes for, you know, actually talking about the movie, you know, in our regular discussion, but yes. essentially Zodiac is the story of, I, I originally wrote four, but I'm going to say five people. This movie focuses on five people. The first person it focuses on is, of course, the Zodiac Killer, who is a mysterious, unidentified serial killer uh, who murdered five people for sure in the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 60s, early 70s. The second person this movie focuses on is San Francisco homicide detective Dave Toskey, played by um, Mark Ruffalo, uh, who is one of the detectives... Uh, assigned to the case and was actually the model for uh the character of bullet uh that steve mcqueen played oh nice yeah the uh third person this movie focuses on is san francisco chronicle reporter paul avery played by robert downey jr who gets so obsessed with the case uh it causes the downfall of both his career and sent his alcoholism out of control the fourth film, the fourth person this movie focuses on is Arthur Lee Allen. He's not like one of the main focuses, but he is one of the main suspects that they believe was the Zodiac Killer. Who, after Robert Graysmith's books came out, he died of a heart attack before they could open an investigation back up on him. And the final person this movie uh, focuses on is, of course, and I believe this one person is the star of the movie, and that would be uh, Robert Graysmith, uh, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, who is a San Francisco Chronicle editorial cartoonist who becomes so obsessed with the case that uh, can, you know it can, the obsession contributed to the end of his marriage, but he was the one who put all of the evidence from multiple counties and multiple uh, <laughs> locations he put it all in one place and wrote the first book about the zodiac killings so when i say there's a lot going on i mean all of these people even arthur lee allen does get you know quite a bit of time and i could also talk about how you know this case took a toll on bill armstrong who's played by anthony edwards from uh er mm -hmm. how it just took a toll on multiple you know different lead investigators over like several counties um and how it you know basically affected um grace smith's second wife played by chloe seven and i'm just gonna say right now this is my even though she's basically the uh sissy spacek and jfk role in this movie this is probably my favorite chloe's chloe seven e performance yeah i love her oh i love I her do too she's i do so, too like i love her presence but i just love looking at her like she's just, just mm -hmm. beautiful I just yes. love looking at her on screen. I'm just like, mm -hmm. oh, she's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. And I love in this movie how whenever she and Grace Smith meet, she's 100% about uh, the Zodiac obsession, and it just declines. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, Mark, you are actually in the area. Um, yes. <laughs> um, were you... Um, 
Were you like, alive for any of this? Um, well, you know, it's funny you should mention that because uh, being born in 72, and like most of the film takes place prior to that, right? Which is cool mm-hmm. because I was like, oh, it's like this is a trip. But then it finally catches up to like when I was born. And then I remember like bits and pieces of it, seeing it on the news as a little kid as the story kind of progressed because obviously I had never found out who Zodiac was, right? Yeah. But – you know, I didn't think about it for a long time until, you know, much later when I was older and, like, the, the, the subject matter would pop up. So by the time the film came out, I was just full-on obsessed. And not only that, but I love how the film itself is kind of like a love letter to SF of that era, especially the Chronicle mm-hmm. buildings. When I walk by it, I think of this damn movie every <laughs> single time. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of hard not to. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, um, so the way this movie came to be, uh, and my source on this is, of course, James Vanderbilt, and I'm going to have to do a very truncated version of this, but he read the book in high school, and after he graduated from film school, whenever he got an agent, because he sold his first script um, like two days before he graduated, because that's how that works, Um, and... Whenever he got his literary agent, his manager, he was just like, they asked him, what is your dream project? And he said, Zodiac. He wanted to, this was, this was as much of an obsession for Vanderbilt as it was for Graysmith. And unfortunately, he was not given a chance because the rights were owned by Disney. This was almost a Disney movie. <laughs> and and uh, obviously it would have come out through like you know a touchstone or hollywood pictures or yeah. miramax something like that but disney had the rights and it was in the hands of a screenwriter named shane salerno who um I, he wrote one of the alien versus predator movies and um he also read the book in high school so he wanted to make it but nothing happened disney let the rights go and Vanderbilt met with Fincher and as he said that you know when you're making a film about a serial killer you almost have to go to Fincher first just just, <laughs> just because and was was actually surprised that Fincher came on board and he's like I don't want to make a film about serial killers I want to make a film he's like I want to make the last serial killer movie but really he what he wanted to make was a film about obsession and that's really what this movie perfect. is yeah yeah, and with Fincher on board, they actually do it. No, I was gonna say that that kind of that's like my big question with this film. I completely agree with you, and I think it's the question people have been asking for years. Um, I completely agree. This is not a film about um, a serial killer. It's more of a film about obsession. But what is our obsession with serial killers? <laughs> there's the $50,000 question if I've ever heard it because you know so many people and I mean you could throw a rock at our friends group and hit five people probably obsessed with true crime and serial killers and I think I think there's this this want to know what drives someone to do that you know you know be that organized and that joke died <laughs> so can i say that i'm just upon hearing that disney almost created this i i think 
Although I don't know, I, I wouldn't have won that, that 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 happened. But I'm just sad at the fact that now we missed out on Jake Gyllenhaal being a Disney princess. So there's that. Prince That's of Persia. That. Prince of Persia. Okay, close enough. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And, uh, and when Disney had control, it was going to be a little bit closer to the... Um, the version of seven that they wanted to, that Warner brothers wanted to make where mm. in the end they caught the guy where it's a yeah. little bit more like dirty Harry, which this film obviously inspired. Um, mm-hmm. And they did not want to do that. And whenever you have someone like a David Fincher, they can tell a studio like Warner brothers and Paramount who co-distributed this film to essentially fuck off. And the, stu- <laughs> and the studio kept, you know, asking why about so many things like why don't they just go arrest Arthur Lee Allen whenever he's you know obviously creepy and possibly the killer and James Vanderbilt had to explain to studio heads that's not how due process works and actually that's what's great about this movie because it also shows the frustration of working within the bounds of the law to actually make this you know try to catch the killer and so do you i mean i have to ask the question because we ask it i mean i ask it every single time we do a film like this based on a true story how much of this do you think as far as like the steps of the investigation and what the what the police actually did do you think is accurate like how much homework did venture do okay i'm going to answer that question in an anecdote um one day they were on set. I believe it was the Lake Berryessa murder where Hartnell was, um, Hartnell and uh, his girlfriend were stabbed. And David Fincher, and this is why if I ever make a movie, I will never be as good as Fincher, and no one will ever be as good as Fincher, got down on the ground and listened to the gravel, stood up, and told the detective who was on the scene when the real murder occurred, I think the crime scene was over there, and the cop went, oh my god, you're right. Almost every living person... Wait, what? From the, How is that yes. possible? Well, first, Fincher's insane, and second of all, David Fincher and James Vanderbilt basically reinvestigated this case, but... Everyone who was still alive, including Dave Toski, were consultants and were on set a lot of the time and assisted with the film. Nice. So um, this is one of those moments, like, obviously there are going to be some characters that are truncated, some people that they probably didn't get the life rights. Um, uh, Dave Toski's wife, who was played by June Diane Raphael, um, didn't want her name in the film. So she's just Toski's wife. Um, but basically, uh, whenever Hollywood, especially big money, Hollywood was coming to talk, everyone started getting real chatty. Uh, even people like Mike Majot and, uh, Brian Hartnell who were still around and they were you know, more than willing to talk. So they got it as accurate as possible while still making the film entertaining. Mark Ruffalo is actually really good in this film. Like, not that he's not. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I love his character. You know, and I know it's based on a real person and everything, but mm-hmm. it's like, I think that's the, the other thing too, is that these folks, 
all involved in the film sell the hell out of it, so you never feel pulled out from the film at all. Mm-hmm. It, it, you get kind of transported and dropped into this whole thing. Yeah, and you get and you're engrossed until like you know you're like I want to know I want to know you know and you become obsessed. It helps you become oh, obsessed. <laughs> oh god, yeah. I was still working nights when this movie came out. Um, as I said, and I would listen to that Vanderbilt uh, podcast that he did with Jeff Goldsmith about the writing of the film. Like I would almost listen to it every night while I was at work because first of all, it was a good way to kind of time yourself and you know, okay, this episode's an hour, so I need to get this much done in this hour. But yeah. it does make you want to go down that rabbit hole. And I have actually read Grace Smith's first book, but I didn't read Zodiac Unmasked. And in in that and in that book, for a lot of people, they had to use um, pseudonyms. But you know, with this, you know, they were able to use the real people's names yeah. as much as possible. Because uh, Arthur Lee Allen wasn't even called by name in that book. Because I believe he was maybe he yeah. Because at that point, he was still alive and probably very oh. sui- probably very suish. Because uh, yeah. and, and even in this film, they had to tread lightly. Uh, one of the scenes in the diners where Toski takes uh, half of uh, Armstrong's sandwich, and they're talking about Alan and never he he drops the line, touching little kids, and um, Toski says polite euphemism, and that was their way of you know skirting around yeah, what yeah. Alan was convicted for, and you know being and not making themselves legally okay. Interesting. Yeah. And this was, uh, and this was part of Danny Jr. Like like you said, it was easy. You know, you, you really think these were the, all of the actors were selling, like they were the actual people. And that was very believable because this was all pre Iron Man. And I think this is, this is the movie that got us Tony Stark because I believe someone at Paramount uh, yeah. Looked at this and was like, "Downey Jr. is perfect." Because this was when, yeah. whenever he was still kind of on shaky ground with everyone. It was, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, although I was going to say, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I was going to add that you know that scene, and I'm just jumping ahead, but there's a scene later where we see him where he's a hot mess in his like boat or whatever mm-hmm. he, he lives. And when he's in that robe and he's on the couch and his hair is long and, you know, it's been years since the investigation is going on. He's like, he looks like Mark Maron when he's sitting on the couch. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell, dude? I was like, you can totally play Mark Maron. I was like, that's yeah. awesome. Uh, <laughs> you know what's crazy, though, about that is he, I mean, he was so insanely talented. It had to have been his behavior, right? Like, that, that had to have been why he was sort of on shaky ground because well he went to prison wouldn't have already considered him his addictions were so legendary that if it wasn't for friends after he got out you know he wouldn't have had some of he wouldn't be getting parts it wasn't if if uh shane black hadn't you know been his friend yeah and made kiss kiss bang bang we may not he might not have been our iron man this was kind of this was kind of the era where Danny Jr was still proving himself to Hollywood yeah. that things were yeah. okay even though yeah. even whenever he was still blitzed out of his mind he was still doing great work you know um yeah yeah the biggest tragedy of that entire thing would have been not having kiss kiss bang bang 
right? This is it's this is very great. true. That's a great film. It is. By the way, that's getting added to our manly movie of the month for next Ooh. year. Absolutely. Awesome. I'm always down for that movie. Oh man. Yeah. I just wish Shane, Shane Black was was a better human being. But anyway, right. On. Well, I mean, that's, that's the unfortunate thing about so much material that gets made by these folks. It's like mm-hmm. after a while, like the truth comes out, and like all their scandals or things that they've done in the past, and it's like, oh, it's like super frustrating because, mm-hmm. if, for instance, Kevin Stacy. It's tough to think about what has happened since, but damn it, if he didn't leave some amazing material behind. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah. just, just why can't they? Why can't they all just be Keanu Reeves? Right, right? exactly. But then mm-hmm. Keanu wouldn't be so special, right? Like he's, he's yeah, like, he's our good boy. He's, he's he just, is. He's mm-hmm. such a sweetheart, and he's so damn cute. <laughs> I know yep. he's just he's just literally one of the most unproblematic people on the, the mm-hmm. planet. Yeah, I mean, well. And, I, I also maintain Kevin Smith is still one of the good ones because, you know, mm-hmm. he he hasn't fucked up. And Hugh Jackman. I mean, and I would say it's pretty fair to say Hugh Jackman comes with both the talent and the uh, being unproblematic, which don't always go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we can't even say that about Keanu a lot of times. Yeah. Oh, and then there is Tom Hanks. And I know people have tried to make him problematic. Right? But... Yeah. Yeah. Well, the only thing problematic about him is his son, and that's a whole other subject onto its own. <laughs> yeah. At least at least we have Colin. We have Colin, but Chet. Yeah. Oh Lord, have mercy. <laughs> well, we we knew he was a problem whenever he was named Chet. So it's right, like exactly. Yes. It's almost like if you're named Bertha, you're destined to be a lunch lady. Right. What did he do? Well, first he's a rapper. Let's <laughs> just. Um, and then, and then he likes, and then he likes to. He takes on a black scent as well. Yeah, and then also after his parents had COVID, he came out as like a huge anti-vaxer. Yeah, yeah. And he does all this. Just... He, he, the thing about it is, the worst part of it is, he's like the bad boy that like people flock to because he's a handsome dude, which like, oh, ugh, you know. Anyway, whatever. Well, no, you know what? That's that's just I don't get that. Colin's where it's at. Yep, indeed, and he makes good documentaries too. (laughs) Oh yeah, the Tower Records doc. Yes, I've actually loved him. This is gonna this is gonna date me a little. This goes back. I've loved him since Roswell. Nice. (laughs) I've been a Colin Hanks fan since Orange. County. I don't know where that lines up with Roswell. <laughs> so, Zodiac. Yes. Yeah. So I I love the um that the first murder we see is actually not well. Love is a weird way of saying that, starting that sentence, but how they start on the second murder instead of doing going back and doing the first Zodiac kill. Um. And their reasoning was that no one survived that first kill, so it was, you know, wouldn't be accurate to, you know, the way that, because Mike Michaud was alive and still able to be a consultant, so. You know, I think that kind of adds a little bit of credibility to what they were trying to Mm -hmm. do. Um, And not just that, but the way the kills were filmed. I mean, 
That's another one of those. I think one of those indicators is the movie wasn't so much focused on the serial killer like it usually is, mm-hmm. um, because they didn't make the killing overly graphic. Well, some of those kills are absolutely brutal. Like, I mean, uh, yeah. the one on Hartnell and Cecilia were just uncomfortable to watch. Even now, for me, that's still just hard to watch. But Vanderbilt the and one Fincher. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's a yeah. brutal one. Holy mm-hmm. shit. And <laughs> they they could have gone further because she lived for a while. I mean, she died whenever they got to the hospital. But the way that he was able to escape is she chewed through his ropes and he had enough strength to go for help. And, but one thing Vanderbilt and Fincher didn't want to do was they didn't want to make this like a horror movie where the kill is a payoff. They were like, these are real people. This really happened. And um, Vanderbilt was like, we want to make this as unsalacious as possible. Yeah. They did a great job. Mm -hmm. Do it. Was there any theory behind um, why the Zodiac killer didn't seem to ever go back and try and kill any of the survivors? Um. I, I mean, don't there was think, some suggestion well, that that might, you know, they were concerned about it, but. With one possible exception, I don't believe believe the Zodiac even knew these people's names until he saw themselves in the papers. Yeah. Well, remember it's mentioned in the film, too, that he seemed to focus on the women and making sure they mm-hmm. were dead as opposed to the men that they were with. So yeah. obviously there that might say a lot about what was going on in the killer's head mm-hmm. and why they were doing what they were doing. Yeah. And it makes you almost wonder uh, if there wasn't enough evidence to support he was actually the killer of Paul Stein. That one could have been just about anyone. Well, and really any of these murders could almost have been anyone, you know, not necessarily the Zodiac. It was just the fact that he released so many details that no one would know. That's how we have the confirmation of all these. Hmm. Because, um, like I said at the beginning, only five of these attacks are confirmed to be Zodiac. And he either took credit or was blamed for multiple murders and kidnappings and different things throughout the years. I mean... um, there's even the debate whether or not the Kathleen Johns incident, uh, which um, the lady that was kind of kidnapped on the side of the road. Uh, you and his guy. <laughs> yeah, in an uncredited role. Like she, I, right. I'm, not, I'm not sure why she went uncredited, but I mean, um, yeah, there's speculation that, you know, she just looked up and maybe saw a Zodiac Wanted poster and said, that's who kidnapped me. It's just so interesting that they didn't, they don't really have a motive. They didn't, I mean. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like scream, no motive, it's scarier. Or sorry, one cream. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be a thing now. <sighs> well, I, uh, we would let it die, but some people keep tagging me on Twitter. <laughs> 
But I, I do think, like, and, you know, the way Fincher told this story was really brilliant, but the story itself was sort of primed for it. Since mm-hmm. we don't really know for sure who the killer was, we don't know their motive, you can focus on the investigation around it, which is better because I think it always begs the question, and I'll ask y'all, I mean, do you ever think that we're ever going to stop, like, fetishizing isn't the right word, but, like, glorifying and glamorizing the serial killer because really honestly i'm gonna think in particular like the zodiac since he was Mm. trying to get press i think you were right the first time whenever you said fetishize yeah 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 it's just and it i I mean and and not not the the fault of the show but Mm -hmm. with like things like podcasts it's only come back around you know because then you get people who love to investigate these things on their own. I mean, we we just had a TV series about these types of things. Of, yes. Of, and, and it was a great TV series. Yes, <laughs> and know? I cannot wait for season two. It's so good. And, and you know, whether it be by, by way of it being a super serious podcast or one that takes a lighter look at the whole subject, I, I mean... It, it's so scary to think that there are people among us who can do these sort of things, but I think people are also fascinated by the fact that people can do those things. Yeah. And, you know, they want to take a deep dive and they want to understand. Um, but I think that's also the, they're, they're, like you're saying, it's a, fetish, it's a fetish in a way, but it's like the thrill of it as well, too. So it's kind of messed yeah. up, but, you know. Well, well, and it's not even just serial killers. I mean, like regular murder, like Dateline. We wouldn't have Dateline if we weren't obsessed with people killing each other. I mean, people will watch those episodes and pick it apart the way they do House Hunters episodes. Yeah. Well, look like the Unsolved Mysteries is back now, you know? Yeah. So there's that. Yeah. And, And I think, you know, it's it's like we want to. You were right when we say we want to know what would make someone do that. I mean, there are occasions whenever someone kills another person, and we're like, we don't agree, but we kind of understand. But it's stuff like this. And when I I know at least one of the victims, if it was Arthur Lee Allen who was the Zodiac, and I I, I know the case was quote unquote solved uh, about a month or so ago, uh, but. Yeah, you know, I, I still question that as well. But if it was Arthur Lee Allen, we at least know the motive of one killing because he was obsessed with Darlene, and mm-hmm. Mike was moving in on his woman, and it was never going to be his woman, and he didn't like that, so he tried to take them out. And if if nothing else, we know for a fact. Mike Majot will swear to this day that Arthur Lee Allen is the man that shot him. And so you write that I, mean, I was like, people come out of the woodwork when, when like these investigations happen. Like I said, people will confess to it and have nothing to do with it just because they're just kind of just kind of in their own little reality and they see something like that and they want to be attached to it. They want to be part of the bigger picture, right? Mm-hmm. Even yeah. if it is for murders or whatever, you know? Yeah. It's almost like female trouble. It's like it's not necessarily about committing the crimes. It's because you want to be famous, and it doesn't matter how you're famous. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Per, coming per next Zodiac. Per Zodiac. <laughs> <laughs> coming, coming next year, John makes Sammy watch another John Waters movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously, that's not for female trouble, but I still had to throw that in there. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, no, yeah. <laughs> okay, so can I say one of the things I loved about this movie is how accurate I found all of the interactions between the different law enforcement agencies and yeah like just the kind of way they portrayed the lack of communication and Mm -hmm. sort of the unwillingness to want to assist because it was more about you know we need to be the agency to solve the case this is our jurisdiction then Mm -hmm. hey there's a serial Mm -hmm. killer maybe we should all just work together to to find out who this guy is yeah well and and also it's not just it's a combination of the unwillingness or the obliviousness, like uh, whenever Armstrong's on the phone with um, Molinax, he's just like, you need to call Vallejo about the, or another county about this one murder. It's like, why is it, why there? It's like, it's over the county line, so it wasn't their problem. <laughs> and then you have nutcases like Paul Avery, um, you know, may he also rest in peace, <clears throat> trying to stir shit up, you know, in different cities thinking he had a, another Zodiac victim whenever they're like, we have someone we like for this murder, you know, and we can't. <laughs> yeah. Can't. It, it, it just seems like some of these could have been solved a lot faster had the interagency communication been just a little bit better. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, look at, look at the fact, like when they, they're, when the investigation is starting and some folks don't even have facts or don't have the same technology that others mm-hmm. do, and that's part of the problem, right? It's like you, yeah. you have to wonder if something like this were to happen now, if things would have moved along a lot quicker and maybe they might have been able to find out who it was quicker, right? Yeah. But a lot of that, it's like you had to wait. So mm. That leads me to a question I have. It seems like, and maybe because it's, it's sort of history, it seems like you hear a lot more about serial killers from like whether it's, you know, a hundred years ago, or it's just decades ago. Can y'all think of a modern day serial killer? I'm talking a serial killer in the last five years. No, you're right. Well, like, well, technically here in our own backyard. Yes. That we just had a nurse get convicted of capital murder and uh, received the death penalty for the murder of four patients. You know what? Uh. And that qualifies. Yeah, yeah, he technically is qualified as a serial killer. Yeah. I know this because I can turn around in my desk at work and the news department's right there. So I got a lot of updates. You know, you you, you just reminded me, but there's like one other, I mean, I'm sure there's many others, but it's like the other notable one from out here, as well as the Night Stalker. And mm-hmm. it's like, I'm just sitting here going on these lists of people. It's like, how did people ever feel safe in this state? <laughs> right. Well, yeah. and then you had, like, I mean, they were all over the country. You had Son of Sam. You yeah. had yeah. Uh, yeah. Geez, Ted Bundy. Like. Yep. And they all got uh, marriage proposals and love letters or became pastors. Yeah, yeah that's, a whole n- sh- that's a whole other psychological evaluation that needs to occur. Yeah. Coming next year to the Manly Movie of the Month, Summer of Sam. <laughs> yeah, well, speaking a, of um, a serial killer movie that barely has a serial killer in it. <laughs> speaking of uh, fetishizing, mm-hmm. 
Now, um, so that kind of leads me to my other two-part question. Okay, how many murders were there total in the film? In the film? Uh, three. Yeah. Total three. Okay. five. Uh, okay, so the film shows three of the murders. Mm. There were five total attacks on seven people that we can confirm to be the Zodiac. And the ones we see uh, were Darlene Farron, Cecilia um, Shepherds, and Paul Stein. Those are the ones we see, and we don't see David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen because no one survived that attack, so they didn't film that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so here's my other question. Do you think any of those, or do you think any of the Zodiac, or should I say the killings blamed on the Zodiac were copycats? It's entirely possible. The only thing that connects these five cases is the fact that um, the details in the Zodiac letters or phone calls before he started sending letters had information that only people who were involved in the killing or the investigation would know and not outsiders. It's whenever things like Kathleen Johns says the Zodiac uh, kidnapped her and then like days later the Chronicle gets a letter with details that were only in the Chronicle because he did start lying because like like everyone he became a fame whore. <laughs> what was the movie and, Serial Hags? And he goes, uh, next up on. <laughs> yep. <laughs> he has to start taking credit for other people's attempted murders. Yeah. And that made the San Francisco police and other police departments' lives a lot harder. Okay. But, and, so, can we talk about Jake Joan Hall for, for a moment? The reason we're all here. Did. Did he have any opportunity? Um, I mean, did they talk about? I'm assuming you listened to the commentary, John. Did he get a, like a real opportunity to do a pretty in-depth character study? Oh yeah. Um, in fact, he was so accurate to Graysmith that at the premiere, Graysmith at a certain point went, "Oh, that's why my wife left me." Because <laughs> 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 like, like, <laughs> you got to remember, everyone except for Robert Downey Jr for the most part, got to meet their real-life counterparts and get some of their mannerisms and talk to them. Uh, you know, Avery passed away, so Downey Jr. Uh, basically had to talk to Avery's, you know, former co-workers, and they said that Downey Jr., having not met Avery, got it pretty pretty accurate. Nice. Yeah, I just but, I think right. he did a really good job, and I, I don't mm-hmm. know this this movie. I can't I can't remember in two thousand seven what what was going on at the Oscars, and I'm sure it was like a a critically well received film, but I feel like it was a little bit underrated. Yeah, yeah, this film kind of got ignored, but um, two thousand seven would that have been the battle between There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men? Yeah, I don't know. Because it feels like that would have been around the same era. And even then, as much as I love this film, I probably still would have stood by, by my No Country for Old Men for Best Picture pick. <laughs> I'll cut this out, but I'm kind of looking that up. Well, I mean, looking at 2007 in film, I mean, its big competition was Harry Potter 5 and Pirates of the Caribbean 4. Yeah, that's or see, that's three. strange. This movie definitely should have got way more attention. Yeah, that's this, crazy. You're right. Yeah. I never thought about it that way, Sammy. But you're right, though. It is it is underrated, and the fact that it just 
should have won more. You know, I don't even know any awards that it won. To be yeah. honest, I don't so. think it was nominated for anything. And I think part of the reason was this movie got a release in March. It got. I think it actually got delayed, and it came out in March. And that's yeah. so early; people tend to forget about it. But then, you know, I, I here's the thing. I, I I totally get that because I think any movie that comes out early in the year, unfortunately, mm-hmm. will get be forgotten by the time award season comes around. But Gladiator yeah. was the one film that broke that rule because I remember it, it came out early in the year mm-hmm. and it just never lost steam. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. <"Wow." laughs> so so Sammy may be changing her answer because this year. That was the year of the fight between There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men and Atonement and Sweeney Todd and a little movie called Gone Baby Gone. Wow. And Juno and um, Away From Her, Levine yeah. Rose. Um, yeah, that's a lot. It, it was a I still, I year. still will die on the hill, but I think Gone Baby Gone should have been Casey Affleck's Oscar not Manchester by the Sea. Now that was a good film. Um, he he wouldn't have had a chance because his competition was Daniel Day Lewis and Daniel. Um, Daniel. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Twas his milkshake to drink. Yes. <laughs> his his milkshake brought all the Oscars to the yard. And on that note, <laughs> thank you for listening to Surviving Chip Flicks. It was a good run. <laughs> It was a pleasure. No, you know at this point, right? Anytime he gets nominated for an Oscar, everybody else in the everybody else in the room just goes fuck. I get, we might as well just not even be here. Right? Yeah, because they know he drove himself crazy for a year, becoming whoever he was playing. Right, and and basically what he what he does is he just comes out of hiding once every I don't know decade and yeah. makes a film, wins an Oscar, and goes back into hiding. Sort yeah. of the way James Cameron, well, I know he's done other stuff, but just like every so often comes out of the woodwork and makes a highest grossing film of all time. You know? Yeah. yeah. You, you just never think that, uh, I, you just imagine Daniel Day-Lewis coming home from making shoes because that's what he does to calm down after a role. And his wife is like, look, Daniel, no, no, I'm not calling you Abraham. Abra- okay, Abraham, the gas bills do. Pay the gas bills. Exactly. I just, just want to yeah. see that. Yeah. It's it's so true. I remember um, Joseph Gordon saying uh, during the filming, he, he never met Daniel Day-Lewis till the last day of filming Lincoln. Well, uh, apparently the same is true on Fast Times at Ridgemont High. No one met Sean Penn until, like, Spicoli rapped because he was only to be addressed to Spicoli. See oh, what God. Yeah. That's so funny. Meanwhile, yeah, people like Anthony Hopkins is just like, I just show up and say my lines and I go home. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. There's almost something I respect more about the... I mean, I think it's incredibly impressive what people like Daniel Day-Lewis and Sean Penn do. But to mm-hmm. me, there's almost something I respect more about the Jack Nicholsons or the Anthony Hopkins that don't need to do it. They, well, they come, they show up by themselves, but when the camera starts rolling, it's just like they flip the switch and then they turn it back off. I, I mean, yeah. I kind of half agree. Uh, to me, Nicholson just plays Nicholson, but he's very good at whatever Nicholson is like, oh, this time it's the the Nicholson yeah. and clown makeup, and this is the one with the questionable Irish accent. Cool. 
cool, cool. <laughs> I heard somebody say that about Michael Caine recently, and while that bothered me, I don't see Michael Caine being the same way as Jack Nicholson is. Do you know yeah. what I'm talking about? Is that make, yeah. Does that make any sense? Because I know mm. what they were getting at, because look at, look at your Al Pacinos and your Tom Cruises. After a while, these guys get paid to show up to be Tom Cruise or Al Pacino, yeah. right? That's all it is. Mm -hmm. But I never quite got that from Michael Caine, though. I, I don't either. I think he's... That, I think, so. You know, I think Michael Caine has lost himself in a couple of roles, none of which were Jaws the Revenge, but, you know... <laughs> you know, you miss your Oscar night, uh, the night you win your Oscar, too, because you're on the set of Jaws the Revenge. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Um, a tragedy on I, many levels. <laughs> yep. Uh, you know, Those... somebody said the same... I, I kind of feel the same way about Michael Keaton, that he sort of does that, and I cannot put my finger on it, like, Michael Keaton, to me, plays Michael Keaton to an extent, but he's just so good at doing it that... Yeah. I don't know. I, I, think there's a, I think there's a couple of Michael Keaton roles I would argue against, you know, like uh, Birdman and, um, well, no, he kind of is playing Michael Keaton in Birdman. I'm going to retract that one, but, uh, like, The Founder like yes now uh whenever he did show up for like five minutes in charles chicago seven it's like oh look it's michael keaton right exactly so um one thing i did watch um back when we were going to do this in august uh was there are so many videos about fincher and his directing style and they use this film as an example about all the different like insert shots and camera angles fincher does and whenever you look at this film like almost every single shot that he pulls off is a work of art and even in the and especially with the recreation of old san francisco because they use very little cgi uh, they tried to you know make they tried to bring back you know that era of san francisco or wherever they were as much as possible even so much i think they planted some trees at one point <laughs> i i love the the how they to show the passage of time was like at first like the Transamerica building all you mm -hmm. see is the base right then yeah. eventually it gets built on screen and I was like oh yeah. I that's like one of my favorite moments in this film yeah which brings me to a question I meant to ask at the beginning which cut of the movie did you guys watch oh that so oh I didn't know there was multiple there are two cuts there is the theatrical cut and the director's cut. And the way you know the difference, because it's not, there's not a lot of differences. There's a lot of heads and tails and scene, scenes that were just kind of added in, like a little bit more exposition. The big tell is if there is a, about a minute long sequence where the screen is black, but you hear like news clips and like different stuff, like kind of an audio collage, that and a scene where they're, and they're, there's like another scene where they're trying to get the, um, warrant the search warrant for Arthur Lee Allen that's the way you can tell which cut you're watching interesting I, I mean I, I watched it off Netflix so I don't know what version they have on there they um, probably would have had the theatrical uh, I okay. I rewatched today off of the Criterion channel because I was too lazy to go to a shelf in my room and get a disc off of the set uh, off the yeah. shelf because uh, I over the course of prepping for this episode I did watch both cuts uh, but Criterion even had the theatrical cut 
which makes two weeks in a way a row of me depending on Criterion, and they just went theatrical. <clears throat> yeah, I want to say I watched the theatrical cut. Yeah, because uh, if you didn't have a moment where you're like, oh, crap, my TV's broken because I only have sound, then you watch the theatrical cut. Because that happened to me with the first time I watched the director's cut. But I do love how the passage of time, and sometimes I, I love that sequence of that of the Transamerica building uh, being built, but also how sometimes time will just pass in a line of dialogue. It's like in one, one scene they're interviewing... Uh, Arthur Lee Allen in like two scenes later, 11 months have passed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I actually kind of want to, okay. So I want to go back because we sort of did what we do and we go off on rabbit holes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so while we were talking about Jake Gyllenhaal, part of the reason I asked that question about, you know, what kind of character study he did is I was trying to pick out different moments in the film and whether or not they actually happened. And he had one of those typical horror, like the only typical horror film moment in this entire movie that I think was when he went to visit Roger Rabbit's basement. Yes. (laughs) And it's that moment in the horror film when you scream at the idiot. No, Mm -hmm. don't go down in the serial killer's basement. Um, Grace Smith said it happened, so. That is hilarious. I completely that... forgot about that until you mentioned who he was, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, why would you do that? Why, why would any of them, uh, with the exception of Toski, do half the things that they did in this movie? The The obsession got to them. It is that obsession where, like, I, I mean, Grace Smith was putting his family and himself in danger you know, trying to investigate someone who's obviously murdered five people. So, and they read the Chronicle. So I, I kind of want to backpedal uh, to the beginning of, of the movie um, after the um, attack on uh, Farron and Majot. The when we see that first Zodiac letter and the tr- and the journey it takes through the newsroom and like that is maybe my favorite Fincher opening shot <laughs> or you know title sequence okay so now that we've kind of now that we've a little bit talked about jake gyllenhaal's character which Mm -hmm. by the way i mean i i think it's understated that was that was kind of a point i was making too with how this Mm -hmm. film was underrated the performances i just don't think they got the recognition they deserved he did an incredible job and so did robert downey jr which he always does but um i I don't know i found his character so fascinating oh gray smith Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, and what's cool about Graysmith is this obsession that turned into the Zodiac novel kind of began his second career because he wrote several true crime books, including uh, Autofocus about the Hogan's Hero murder. I can't. I, is it Bob Crane? Thank you, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, all of these, something I liked about the way that Fincher did this film is there was this parallel going on the entire time between the Zodiac Killer and the people investigating him because they were Mm -hmm. equally as obsessed with finding him as he was with killing people and getting recognition for what he was doing. 
Um, they just all had different different levels of it. But I thought Robert Downey Jr.'s character was. Um, I, it might have been in, in a in a um, film about a serial killer and people dying horribly violent deaths. Might have been his story. Might have been one of the saddest parts of the film. Oh yeah, I I think all three of of our principal characters are you know in the running for saddest story ever. I mean, Toski didn't lose a marriage, but I mean, it affected his job. Um, you know. He had a partner quit on him because he couldn't take it anymore. You know, Graysmith lost his wife and Avery, you know, quit, got fired from the Chronicle, descended in further into alcoholism. I, I love that, you know, I love that scene talking about Downey now. Um, whenever the editor is, you know, telling him to essentially clean up his act and, uh Hall just asked, "Are you all right?" And he just like, "No, but thanks for asking." Like exactly. Yeah, that was just such a great moment. By the way, I I, I have to add here that the beginning of the downfall was the blue drink. Thank you. Yes, Mr. Grace the Oc- the that's, that's where it all began because he's mm. like, "Okay, that can no longer be ignored anymore." This is one of my favorite lines of dialogue in the whole. Yes, film. and not that I want to make light of anyone's alcoholism because lord knows my life has been affected by that by family members yeah. and so forth but just for the purposes of the character say a and character the, right it just it's funny i was like that blue drink is dangerous man <laughs> yeah uh, and it kind of lends itself to those uh memes i see every now and then it's just like oh you're gonna make fun of this uh colorful fruity drink and you're gonna sit there and you drink your beer meanwhile that fruity drink has way more booze in it than and probably tastes better and probably tastes better you know even though i know i'm talking to a beer aficionado over oh i love both though (laughs) that's why i appreciate the meme because i was like hey i Mm -hmm. i get it right yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah because there have been several nights where we just taste something it's like oh that's dangerous <laughs> yeah no i had an amazing gin drink last night that i was like okay we're coming back here for my birthday <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, it, it almost makes me want to go go to a bar and be like what is an aqua velva and can you make me one <laughs> I, I have to know um, just uh, john i would just be careful you work in news so you're. I, I mean, I work news. I, oh God, no! I am Graysmith at this point. I'm not a cartoonist, but yeah, yeah. I'm adjacent enough. Okay, so I want to talk about John Carroll Lynch as Arthur Lee Allen. Yeah. I have a hard time, thanks to this movie, watching him in other stuff because <laughs> now, without thinking in the back of my hand, it's like. That's the Zodiac. Because it's unnerving. It's the way he does it. The weed, like that scene where they go see him at work. Mm-hmm. It, it is like there's so much packed into the way the acting and all the repertoire, the like it, mm-hmm. between them and the police, back and forth, back and forth. And I'm like sitting here, it's like it's the whole movie comes to a head in that one scene and kind of the direction it takes from there. Because he's yeah. like, you can't forget him after that, right? Mm. Even though even though the trail leads away from him at some point, you never yeah. forget that particular no. moment. So, 
All right, Sammy, as an attorney, whenever you see someone being interrogated by the police and they keep saying sentences like, the knives in my car, uh, you know, I was skin diving and I and the blood was from when I killed a chicken for dinner. As an attorney, do you just want to go, shut the fuck up? Um, uh, I know you're not yes. an incri- criminal attorney, but still. Yes and no. Um I mean, yes, actually, I mean, it, it does. It's never, it's, it's usually not going to be beneficial to you to do that and, and mm-hmm. to talk to your attorney. But on the other hand, I think there is some truth to this, to this concept of, you know, immediately lawyering up mm-hmm. will cause them to treat you like you're guilty. I personally don't think that that's actually any evidence of guilt, but yeah, but I still maintain every sentence he said was like, you're not helping yourself. Even even if you did kill a chicken for dinner and also grocery stores exist, sir. Because um, <laughs> that raises its own questions. Like, did he raise chickens? Did he buy a, a live chicken? Did he steal a chicken? Yes, yes. And, yeah. And, and, and the other thing, too, it's like, why would you even bring that up? It's like, yeah. you know, it's like, it's number one, is he doing it because he's like, he wants to throw it in their face. Like, there's nothing you can do about this because I'm not going to give mm. you enough to be able to take me in. But I'm still letting you know that I, I like, yeah, let's say, suppose that I did it, you know, and, yeah. and like, there's nothing you can do about it, dude. It's like, but here's my, here's my alibi. It's like, yeah. <laughs> so, so it's almost a, it's this movie's version of the Pacino De Niro scene in Heat, <laughs> where they're both just acknowledging, you know, if I gotta take you down, I will. But until then, let's have coffee. That's like uh, that diner scene. Oh my god, I haven't seen that in forever, but I remember. Yeah, yeah, it's a great moment. <laughs> so. I, I know that the Zodiac Killer was allegedly been solved and was like, what, some guy named Gary that we had never heard of? But sure. In, was it like two months ago? Yeah, because I remember I tagged you and Mindy on it because I was like, mm-hmm. what just happened? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I, question for the room. Um, do you believe that they solved it or do you like another suspect for the killings? Because yeah, and I say that and, well, and I ask because how many times has the Jack the Ripper case been solved? Yeah, yeah. I just don't feel like they've. It's one of those things that it's almost better left not knowing who it is because it's mm-hmm. like, you know, the mystique of this whole damn thing is going to be gone. You know. Yeah. And who knows? It's it's. I think it's going to be one of those things like where it's going to come to light long after the person has been gone and somebody's mm. going to come forward with the hardest evidence about it and be like, look, this is what happened the whole time. This is why we never came forward mm. with it. And there's going to be no, like, oh, this is it. We finally got our answer. You know? Okay, I recommend actually both of y'all find a, a copy on either DVD or Blu-ray of the director's cut of this movie okay. and watch the bonus features because not only do they get into the produ- produ- the production of the movie, but they get into the investigation and there is a featurette and it's chilling called his name is Arthur Lee Allen. Okay, cool. And 
I, I know they think it's Gary, but I still in my I don't know if it's like I, I want to believe or I do believe it's Arthur Lee Allen. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I'm kind of of the same mind. I I think the film paints a pretty decent picture. Mm-hmm. And and I know his handwriting didn't match. Um, but there's who's to say he didn't have an accomplice writing the letters. Right, or didn't, hold on, didn't they go to that one handwriting expert, though, that said it definitely could have been? I think the, uh, the it could have been was, uh, okay, if it was Alan's handwriting and someone said it, it could have been, that was Sherwood Morrill's assistant, uh, which, by the way, uh, nice to see Philip Baker Hall returning after Boogie Nights to the show. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. He's great in anything, but um, I know... Cheryl couldn't be 100% trusted because he was an alcoholic, but, I mean, he'd been doing it for so long, he could probably do his job, you know, completely drunk and be accurate. Uh, And I know Rick Marshall, uh, they made a big deal about his handwriting kind of lined up, but everything else didn't. Or circumstantial evidence kept him from being a suspect. By the way, thank you. As I just realized, I do have the Blu-ray of the director's cut. I completely forgotten about it. Oh, and I just nice. looked on my shelf, and I'm like, yeah. "Oh my god, that's right! I did buy it when it came out." Yeah, <laughs> dude, it's been so long. It's like, oh, mm. thank you. Now I'm gonna make it a thank you. Now be obsessed, take a deep dive, and you know, who knows where oh, I'll yeah. be at by the time Five Queen comes out. So exactly. <laughs> well, you don't have long, so <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I did the same thing. Um, I was listening to uh, Bill Simmons, The Rewatchables, and they uh, covered Michael Mann's Miami Vice. And I'm like, I really want to rewatch that movie. And I found a used copy at you know one of our local stores. It was like five bucks. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to watch it. And I got home and I looked on my shelf. I'm like, I already fucking had this movie. <laughs> yeah. You just forget sometimes. Yeah, no, you do. I, it's been so long, and mm-hmm. like I said, I was just in a, I was just in a hurry and just comfort wise, and like for the ease of time, it was just easier to just watch it on Netflix, right? But yeah, just, I hadn't realized. Like looking at my collection, I'm all like, oh, that's right, duh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, I watched the streaming too today because um, one out of convenience and laziness, and two, yeah. um, I think I. I think I knew that it was going to be the shorter cut. And I'm like, uh, I don't want to be like, you know, delaying the show because I'm still finishing the movie. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it occurs to me, I still have laundry in the dryer right now. Oh, <laughs> I have laundry waiting for me and I have to finish cleaning house. So, yes, I, yeah. adulting is fun. Same. Yep. I'm glad we're on the same page. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I can't go to sleep tonight until I at least finish that one load. <laughs> My Bedding's in there. Confirmation, I wash my sheets. Yeah. Yeah. You hear that, ladies? Yeah. <laughs> There's some stuff I want to talk about, but I almost feel like we could save it for segments. All right. Well, now that now that you've mentioned it, um, mm-hmm. I feel like we can kick it off because I do have a creepier romantic moment of the film. <laughs> oh. All right. Well then, all right. Why don't you explain creepy or romantic for the new listener? We'll just kick things off. All right, for the new listeners, this is your first episode. First of all, why? But second of all, not about the choice. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> 
Um, so creepy or romantic is basically. I think I know moment, where you're gonna go. <laughs> a moment in the film, or a moment in a film that could either be creepy or romantic, depending on how you feel about the person who's making the gesture. Okay, so creepy or romantic moment of the film. Taking a girl on your on your first date back to your apartment to discuss the serial killer that you're obsessing over. Okay. I'm going to I'm going to say both. It's creepy on Gyllenhaal's end, but it's romantic on her end because at that moment she is 100% into this. She's like I want to see where this she ride goes. Perfect example, depending on how it's received. Had he, mm-hmm. had he met a girl that was totally creeped out by serial killers, it would not have been well-received, and he might have had the police called on him. All right. So I guess I'll ask. So, Sammy, Mark, what are some things about the? Oh, we haven't done best line, worst line. Uh, I, I get the things backwards. <laughs> so you have a best line or worst line? That's okay. This is, what, <laughs> Mark, this is why, why we put you, you in charge. All right. Uh, uh, so best line, I'm, I'm going to go back to that line I said earlier about you know, the blue drink. And he goes, OK, that can no longer be ignored. I, I just love that moment. Mm-hmm. It's just so perfect. It, it's so well executed. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> no pun intended. Right. Exactly. <laughs> OK, um, I think mine is uh, the. I pr- OK, first of all, pretty much any exchange between Robert Downey Jr. and Jake Gyllenhaal. But uh, another another particular favorite line of mine was the uh, "Are you okay? No, but thanks for asking." Yes. All right, mine. John. Okay, first I just want to say almost any line in this movie qualifies, and that's just a testament to how well written this movie is. Uh, my favorite though is um, Avery is calling Toski, and Armstrong walks in. It's like like Avery's on the phone, and he says, "Tell him to screw." You want me to say that verbatim, or you want me to spice it up a little? <laughs> I also loved Jesus Harold Christ on rubber crutches. Bobby, what are you doing? Awesome. I think that was an improv uh, by Downey Jr. too. Yeah, I could see that. He, I think he yeah. likes to improv a lot of his stuff. Which is weird that Fincher, of all directors, would allow any improving. <laughs> So you can improv, but you're going to do 99 takes of that improv. Oh, I, I thought of one more uh, best line. Um, whenever Grace Smith is starting his uh, investigation and he goes to see Toski and he reintroduces himself and is like, we met in a movie. And Toski's like, must have been some movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm just going to say, I'm... Y'all know I'm liberal, but I love the die hard, the Dirty Harry movies so much. Even the shitty ones, uh, like there's just something about them I just enjoy. I don't either. I don't. I can't yeah. think of anything off the top of my head that just like was cringy or anything. Yeah. Well, uh, there was one line that is cringy, and it's whenever at the very beginning when uh, the kids throw the fireworks at Majot and Darlene's car, and he's hangs out the window and screams "fuck off" and die. But the literal next line is the movie making fun of that. That's true. That's true. Because yeah. she, she was kind of like looking him like, okay, mm. like what are you trying to do here? You know. Yeah. 
it, it, yeah, it's so it's so funny because like it, he's like super awkward. I'm trying to think about that that particular moment. Like he's super awkward. Yeah. Like he's just not getting any of the signals. It's like, dude, yeah, <laughs> let's fill it up for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, what are we doing here? Um, sitting in the car, talking, listening to music. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, why do you think we're here? Uh, exactly. <laughs> Is that your husband? I don't know. <laughs> details yeah <laughs> yeah so i guess it's time to move on to our final segment of the episode so mark john what did y'all like about the film do boogie nights rules apply boogie nights rules apply <laughs> all right mark why don't you go first all right i mean i'm gonna just say everything from the direction, the acting, the look of the film, it captures the era. It's in so beautifully, the poster art, I, I, multiple poster arts that they came out for this film. I just always just gets it right, you know I mean? And it has one of the most unnerving scenes that's like right there with the Silence of the Lambs basement scene. This also takes place in a basement, you know? Yeah. Um, that just, I remember seeing that in theaters and I was just like, oh my God, get out of there, get out of there, get out of there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's just so well done. The tension is there. Um, I, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. The, there's so much to love about this film and and I'm I'm reminded every time I watch it again, I'm like, man, this was, this is one of those like films that I will never forget about. And I, I, I love that there's so many people in it that like all are part of like the bigger picture to make it the excellent material that it is. All right, John. Sorry. All right. So for me, uh, the first thing I'm going to bring up with, uh, and it's my usual thing. If you want to say it with me, soundtrack. <laughs> I mean, in the first three scenes, I mean, in like, in like the first two scenes, including the opening titles, you just have so much great music and shout out to Fincher for making me, um, First, give a shit about a Donovan song, and then now making it like creepy because um, I think before this movie, if you had played me Hurdy Gurdy Man, I'm just like, wow, this is just you know nothing. I don't care. And then this maybe this movie made me love that song and the fact. And every time I hear it, I just think of scenes from this movie, especially the end whenever he goes to see. Uh, Arthur at the uh, hardware store and they're just kind of looking at each other and <laughs> apparently they used to go up to see Arthur Lee Allen at that hardware store all the time and he would take the kids that's creepy yeah <laughs> not romantic um, no there's just so many moments in this movie Like I love the look of the film uh, the way it's shot I love the tone of the film how scenes like you know the Kathleen John sequence or the Lake Mary Essa sequence or the basement sequence where no matter how many times this movie, those scenes are still so effective mm-hmm. and then balance those with scenes that are just absolutely heartbreaking. Like Paul's descent into alcoholism and everything going on with grace and his marriage. And then in between all of that, there are these just incredible one liners or, uh, like, you know, whenever he he has the kids helping with the investigation and it's just like, by the way, don't tell mom about our little project. And Oh, God. Um, 
And all I can say is in my line of work, all I can say is in my line of work, that threw up all kinds of red flags. Yeah. Any scene, any sequence that becomes, any sense that begins with don't tell mom about <laughs> is probably yeah. not good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think it's, it's so sad because it's like, obviously this was taking him away from his family. But mm-hmm. that was the only way he could spend time with them was be- to help them become just as obsessed as he was, right? And then they were helping daddy. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the only thing they had together. Mm-hmm. So, that we see in the film, anyway. So. Yeah. Oh, and I love, and kind of bouncing off that, I love the subtle way that this movie just lets you know things are going on without just outright saying it. Like, you know, obviously we talked about the line about the polite euphemism with Arthur, but um, with Gyllenhaal, whenever he just says, I'm not a cartoonist anymore, you know, he either quit or got fired, probably got fired. Um, or whenever, you know, he's with the kids, they're like, why, why don't you and mom sleep in the same room anymore? Yeah, I know. Oh, it's just because you don't have to like spell it out, but it's just those, yeah. those questions that kids would ask mm-hmm. show you where things are at. Right, and yeah. that's I think that's actually really well done without mm-hmm. having to like hit you over the head with it. It just yeah. simply is, you know. And, and, like we didn't see it coming, right? Because it was just falling mm-hmm. apart little by little. <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, and the fact that they captured all that's so great, even got Gray Smith to, to look at his life and go, "Oh, that that's why, that's why." Yeah, right, exactly. He's all, mm-hmm. "I feel so called out right now. Thanks." Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. But at the same time, even when his marriage is falling apart, his ex-wife is saying, finish the book. Well, yeah, I mean, because yeah. look at, at, that, at that point, things are he had already screwed up so badly, everything. that It's like, well, mm-hmm. you better finish it because you didn't do this for nothing. Yeah. Like, you know? Right. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't even think this that was a situation that could have been survived, you know, that, you know, could have been fixed with a conversation like adults, like like we normally bring up in <laughs> whenever relationships go bad in these movies. With him, I'm like, I'm sure he told his wife, "I'm going to write a book about it." And then, but it was it wasn't the book; it was the obsession. Right. You know, whenever whenever he's agreeing to meet someone in Sacramento, two hours away at seven a.m. You know, on a random day instead of going into work. It, it, it's really a heartbreaking story on so many levels, but that's kind of what's great about it because. He sort of highlighted the fact that the Zodiac Killer ruined more lives than just the people he killed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think you just said the pitch line for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right, so Sammy, what about you? So really, I mean, I only touched on it, but I think the thing that, uh, one of the things I love the most is just how much chemistry this cast had. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the way that Robert Downey Jr. and uh, Jake Gyllenhaal played off each other was really, really great. And it made yeah. me curious as to whether or not there was any, like, that was any, in any way, shape, or form, their actual relationship. Um, um, I can answer that. Okay. I'm So, the chemistry between the asked actors? Yes. Better than the real people, because they were not that close in real life. That was one of the rare things that was invented for this movie because you can't really just have a movie about all these main characters that are not connected in any way so that connection was sort of invented but i i imagine 
that they did have multiple conversations about him looming around his desk and stealing shit off his trash cans. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, and and the same deal with uh with him and Mark Ruffalo. Like Well, I mean, he would have had a relationship with Toski um and yeah, because without him, he wouldn't have gotten the green light to go probably talk to all these people. And that might be just movie magic to save some time as well. But but I, I, I just know in the trivia I've read that Paul Avery and Gray Smith weren't really friends. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm. So and I don't... Oh, no, no. That, I mean, that was really my main mm. thing. All right. Well, is there anything we didn't like, you didn't like about this movie? Mark? I, I can't say that I, like I said, I think the first time that I saw it, I didn't connect with it as much, even though, like I said, I was, I was wanted the, I loved the, the material, what it was covering and everything, but it didn't quite sink in that first time. And it was that second time where it really all came together for me and I fell in love with it. So maybe that's the only thing, right? My only gripe I have about this is that it didn't quite reel me in the first time. But otherwise, like I said, at this point now, it's like I watch it and I think, man, I was like, this is just, this is a great Fincher film. Mm-hmm. Let's say this. It could be, I, even though I know it, it needs everything that we see to kind of say what it needs to, but it is a long movie. So you got to be yeah. in the long haul. That would probably be the only thing that, that my biggest complaint is you got to set aside a good chunk of time for it. Yeah. Although for me, it is one of those long movies that, it does not feel long at all. Yeah, no, it's like Titanic. Mm. It's like, you know, mm. next thing you know, the boat's sinking. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I was wrong. This is not my seventh favorite film of all time. This is number six. Mm. This movie beat Taxi Driver. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't really particularly have any complaints that are different. I mean, the only things I could really say is basically what mark said i mean you got to set a good chunk of time aside for it which isn't a huge deal and then um it takes a while for the movie to pick up steam for me like yes i mean i'm not saying that from the not saying it doesn't have a good hook i'm saying i'm very this is personal i'm very character driven so in order to get me to care about a film, you have got to get me to care about the characters, which is why I struggle so much with horror films, because a lot of times there's so little time spent developing the characters. So I don't care about them and I don't want to watch a film where I don't care about the people that are dying. Like then what, you know, what was the point of my two hours? Um, you get to see teenagers die. There's possibly an Alice Cooper song on the soundtrack. <laughs> Oh, that was rhetorical. <laughs> yes. No. Anyway, but that, I mean, that, that's kind of like, so that's where I was with this one. It just took a while to figure out who your main characters are going to be, who your focus is going to be, and what what characters were you going to care about? Like, who was going to drive the story where you were invested to see what happened to this person? And it was really Jake Gyllenhaal. Well, it's Hall's story because he's the one that wrote the book, so therefore it's all about the interactions. But how do I say this and not sound like smug? But I kind of knew who our main characters were going in based on, you know, because I, I will sometimes do the early reading about things and watch the trailer. So I know 
and also on the poster, you know, it's the three faces. It's Jill and Hall, Ruffalo and Downey. So you know those are going to be your main points of focus. So right, I, I yeah, I because I'm not explaining it well. What I meant is I didn't know our characters or the role they were going to play because I hadn't read the book. I hadn't done any of the research. So. Well, I didn't read the book till after the movie. I'm, I'm talking about just articles I read, but yeah. it's not so much caring, but just fascinated slash terrified of so uh, i have one flaw in this movie and it's really in the director's cut i hate i already talked about the audio collage where the screen goes black for nearly a full minute and it's sound during the passage of time versus um has anyone seen the movie uh mr holland's opus long while yes, ago yes there is a yeah. long time ago okay yeah. <laughs> so there is a like a montage that is basically a passage of time from the 60s into the 70s or the 70s into the 80s. And it's showing you like news footage and clips of stuff like Rocky Horror and the Beatles. And, you know, I I like that because I'm at least seeing something. You know, you, you kind of get some ill will with me when my first thought is, did my TV just break? <laughs> but other it's than, an awkward, it's an awkward edit yeah. in, in that sense. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Other than that, I mean, this is a movie I could turn on at any time and watch. And um, back when I was in high school and I had, was watching everything on VHS, I would just put a movie in and like stop it. And then just like watch on it until I finished it. You know, even if it took multiple days, this is one of those movies I could easily do that with. All right. All right. Guess it's uh, time to ask the big question that everybody at this point knows the answer to. Yep. Um, Who is the Zodiac? <laughs> Mark, did you survive the Zodiac killer? Yes, I did. John. No plot twist. I detest this movie. Of course. I mean, yeah, it's my number six movie of all time. <laughs> I've watched this movie like seven times in the last three month, months per, preparing for this episode, so I, th- I think I'm okay with it. <laughs> this is my second time watching it this year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, well, um, yeah, no shocker. I survived also. I'm not as high on it as y'all. I mean, I really like it. It's a great movie, but it is one of those movies you really have to have like three hours to invest of your time, and I just... You know, sometimes it's easier to pop on Sleepaway Camp. I mean, Sleepaway Camp is very watchable. And we know who the killer is in that movie. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) We may have survived, but if I'm understanding correctly, next week, I believe the babysitter's dead. Yes, this is correct. Yes. All right. So our so as we wrap up spooky season and enter into November, our next film on deck is uh, the class, the classic classic. Uh, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. And uh, nice. <laughs> our friend Stephen Rainwater is going to be joining us on that. So nice. the dishes are done, man. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen this movie in probably a good two and a half decades. So this is going to be an interesting experience for me. Indeed. All right. Well, does anyone have anything they want to plug? Uh, Mark, you got anything going on with? pink milk um you know we actually and i should say oh god i feel so horrible i didn't have it ready we're we're part of the potathon going on next saturday we're going to be on at eight o'clock eight a.m 
uh, Pacific time where, you know, we're going to be working with other podcasts to raise money. Um, and we are going to be talking, I, I want to say just probably just Star Wars Lego, but just Lego in general, because we have to keep it kind of family safe and not be our little right. dirty, thirsty selves. We might sneak in a thing or two in there, but either way, Pink Milk is going to be part of that next Saturday morning, but I can give you the information so you can provide a link and so forth. Oh, I'm a awesome. yeah, person and I don't have that information on me. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, you can find me and Chase, Brian, and Emma on Pink Milk After Dark on Friday evenings where we do a live stream and we talk Star Wars clearly. All right, Sammy, you got anything you want to plug this week? No, not particularly. And I already said it earlier, so I'll just revisit it. I saw last night in Soho, best movie of the year so far. Uh, <laughs> anything else is going to have to work really hard to dethrone that. Actually, I do have something now that I think about it. Don't mm-hmm. tell mom the babysitter's dead. Great film. You should all watch it and listen to our episode. Oh, yeah. I assume that was a given. <laughs> all right. Well, Mark, thank you for coming on again. Uh, Hopefully we can have you on again before five cream. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. No, thank you for having me on. It's it's always oh, yes. so much fun talking films with you, the two of you and whoever else we have on as yeah. well too. So oh yeah, <laughs> you you are always welcome over here. You, you know, talk about anything, even if it's not the film we came to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> not that we would ever do that, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, and listeners, thank you for uh, coming back. If you like this, uh, please give us a five-star rating on wherever you're getting your podcast because it helps us out. Uh, Share us with a friend if there's something you want to hear or just drop a line to say hi or correct something I said that was probably wrong. Uh, You can send an email to survivingchickflicks at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter. Sammy's got YouTube and TikTok and uh, Instagram going so well until next week I'm still not Paul Avery Surviving Chick Flicks is created and hosted by John Baggett and Samantha McDaniel our audio engineer and editor is Cody McLean for an ad free version of the show please visit patreon.com slash surviving chick flicks where $5 a month gets you an ad free version of the show as well as our manly movie of the month Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. All opinions are that of the hosts, and no copyright infringements are intended. Surviving Chick Flicks is a Circle of Jug production, all rights reserved. Boys go around helping people in the night. When I'm done with them, they don't need much help. Shh, it's okay. Before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window.